I want to begin today by just saying what an honor it is to be a part of a church that not only rented a movie theater for a movie like, same kind of different as me, but that sold out all the tickets in like 24 hours. How cool is that? Becca, thank you so much for making that, that happen. And thanks to all of you who, who want to, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, you want to see. You want to see. Emmanuel is a church that is filled with people. You just heard from one of them. Filled with people who aren't able to just ignore what the Bible says about reaching out uh, to those who are lost and are hurting in Jesus' name. We, we just can't do it. And not only that, but we're blessed to be a part of a larger family of churches that feels the same way. This covenant thing is the real deal. And it was a slow discovery for me because I didn't grow up in the covenant. But when Laura and I were on the fence when it came to this whole church planting thing with the covenant, they sent us out to a, a training event in fabulous Detroit, Michigan, of all places. So we're out there in fabulous Detroit, and the, the part of the trip that I remember the most vividly was this presentation that was made by the Covenant's missions team. And the reason I remember it is because they were very creative with it. And back in 2006, when we went to this conference, the game show Deal or No Deal was a deal. Um, it had just come out like a half year ago or something, and people were watching this game show called Deal or No Deal. And so they did their presentation with a Deal or No Deal aspect to it. And it was pretty cool because they would describe one of the sites where they were making a real difference around the world, and then people would win things like a book or a DVD. But then every once in a while, they'd say, well, what you won is we are going to send you as the founding pastor, and we'll pay for your whole ticket to go to one of our sites. Or you can send two people and we'll pay half price for both. Or we'll send three and we'll pay one third for all three. I was thinking, that's amazing. And what a bummer for the dude that just won the DVD, you know. (laughs) And as this thing went on, they got close to the end of the presentation. They did their big reveal. And they said, we've been messing with you a little bit. This thing that we've been saying about we will pay to send you full price to one of our projects around the world, or we'll pay for half for two, a third for three. They said, this is a deal for every new covenant church that we launch. Because we believe that this can be in your DNA too. This, this whole thing that was, is just a part of the covenant where we look beyond ourselves and we look to our neighborhoods and we look to our world. They said, if we can introduce you to some of these missions that are going on in countries that don't have the same safety nets that the United States does, if we can introduce you to some of these partners of ours and we can engage you in substantive ministry, you're going to become an advocate. And this is now going to be in your DNA as well. And I want to dive right in because we've got a lot to cover today. I would encourage you to take out your notes and I'd like to start with this. We've been talking about this whole pathway from insulated from the needs around us to introduce, to engage. And today we're going to talk about advocacy. And I'd love for you to write down, advocacy is the natural outcome of substantive engagement. Two weeks ago when we launched the series, we talked about how easy it can be for us to insulate ourselves, many of us, from some of these real um, hurts that most of the world can't insulate themselves from. And then last week, we discussed the importance of moving from introduced to engage, and how do we do that well? Well, this morning, as we close out the series, we're going to look at what comes next after engagement, and that's advocacy. And there's a place to write this in your notes as well. A godly advocate is more valuable than dozens of donors. 
Let me say that again. A godly advocate is more valuable than dozens of donors. And there's all kinds of reasons for this. But one of them, or two of them here, I'll give you right now is this. When, when you simply inspire a disconnected donor, one of the things you don't have is accountability. You're going to have someone that's very, very committed, but you don't also have this accountability. And let me show you why this is important. I drew this really fancy chart up there for you with a lot of dollar signs. Let me tell you what that represents. We'll put it up on the screen here too, so you can can see the artwork up close and uh, personally. Um, This comes out of a World Bank study. And this World Bank study found that 85% of the aid money flowing into African countries never reaches its target. 85%. So if every one of those dollar signs represents $1, all of the black dollar signs don't reach the target. Only the 15 red ones do. Here's why this matters for advocates. Advocates, we're not okay with that. Because we believe passionately about something, either we will confront the organization who's not stewarding the money well, or we'll find one that does. So there's some financial things that make an advocate better than a donor. But let me go beyond that. Because when an advocate is developed, now you don't unleash just their financial capacity. You unleash the whole person. The whole person. And this is so important. Two weeks ago, I shared a little bit about how I was introduced to urban ministry through an organization called the Marie Samick Center as a college kid. And as a college kid who had just lost his father, I didn't have much money. Not much money at all. But that summer after my sophomore year, I was introduced to urban ministry. Again, through the Marie Samick Center. And I was engaged in in ministry that was making a difference. And so, when my time officially, it was time to punch out, I didn't punch out. Because I was engaged in this, I kept going and I volunteered. And and I would would always be spending extra time with the kids in the afternoon. And then I'd work late at night um, off the clock. Because I wanted to give them my absolute best each and every day. And because I felt great about what we were doing, I began inviting others in as well. Here's a couple pictures from back in the day. That's me on the far right with that really cool mint tie. Oh, man. (laughs) Got to love the early 90s, late 80s. And there I am. And and two people over from me is a guy named Chris. Well, he was my roommate. And so after that first summer when I was engaged, I'm like, this is really something to consider doing. I said, Chris, you got to come be a part of this. And that turned out to be a great ad for the ministry. The kids loved Chris. He was a huge asset to our team. And he didn't have much money either. But what we did have at that time, we were living off campus in a house that was basically people were letting us stay there rent-free, the owner was, because he was a Christian. And, and he was saying, hey, you're volunteering at our church. I'll let you stay there. Well, this house had a pool. And this house had a trampoline. And so off the clock, we'd load up our cars with these kids. Um, probably should have had enough seatbelts. But, but anyway, our intentions were good. And, and we'd drive up there. And many of these kids, not only had they not been to a private pool before, not only had they never been on a trampoline before, many of these kids had never been out of their neighborhood before. And because we were advocates, no one had to tell us to do this. No one had to pay us to do this. We just did this. We said, what, what do we have to work with? God, it's all for your glory. The other picture that we got up there is um, a group of guys. There was this, a team. When I was a, my sophomore year, I was interning at a church called Wooddale. And I didn't have much money. Chris didn't have much money. But Wooddale and Eden Prairie had a lot of money. And so I thought, you know, how can I leverage that relationship? So I said, you guys, you got to bring a team down. 
to the Marie Samick Center. So that next summer they did, and there's a shot of some of us crashing in one of the classrooms because it came down for several days. This whole transition that we've been talking about from insulated to introduced, from introduced to engaged to engaged to advocate, no one had to tell me that was the pathway. It just happened. It's what happens when, when a, a person who has a passion for God and, and a love for other people, when they, when they get introduced to something that isn't the way it should be, when, when they then get engaged in a substantive way and they see they can make a difference, they naturally become advocates. And I'll tell you, it's a whole lot easier to simply ask for a donation. And it's a whole lot more efficient. It's a whole lot more efficient, if we're honest, to simply give a donation. But I couldn't agree more with this quote that came from one of the books that we've been recommending from our, our series, throughout our series. We've been recommending this book called Toxic Charity. And this guy has been, he's been doing urban ministry for decades. And, and he writes this. Couldn't agree more. He says, there is no simple or immediate way to discern the right response without a what? Without a relationship. That relationship is everything. And he wrote about this time when there was this church that were, they were very generous donors to his ministry. And the church said, hey, we'd love for you to come. And let me make sure I get this quote right. He said, we would love for you to come and visit with our missions committee for a time of, quote, fellowship and encouragement. And he walked into a setup because they started talking. It wasn't about fellowship and encouragement. It was about some new strings that they wanted to add to their donation. And he said, I felt my heart tighten. I felt like I was being manipulated. You know, and as I was reading that passage, I started to feel my heart tighten. And I started to feel like, oh, no, because I've been on the other side of that table. And I've been with organizations and individuals. And they come and they say, Pastor, I want to learn about Emmanuel and how we can partner with you. And then that conversation changes very quickly to not caring about who we are and what our mission is or what our vision is or even what a partnership would look like. It comes down to, will you write a check? And may I present to you, it doesn't have to be that way. May I present to you, it shouldn't be that way. And there's so many of us in this room can testify to the positives where it truly is a partnership, where there is real relationship. And there's not all this awkwardness as much as there's this unleashing of ideas and excitement. And, and the reason I can personally testify that is when we launched this series that very week, I was on the phone with one of our partners, Emmanuel Children's Home down in Juarez. And it didn't feel manipulative. And our hearts weren't tightening as I was talking to the director. It was the opposite. Our hearts were bursting with excitement because we were talking together what we could do. How we could truly partner to make a difference. And it was so exciting. Well, before we close out this series, one of the things I want to do is I want to I turn to the scriptures here. And I want to walk us through an example of the difference that just one individual can make. And this individual's name was Nehemiah. Now, someday I want to come back to this book and just study it together because there's so much here, especially about leadership. But if you'd be so kind as to open your Bibles, if you brought them to Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to start with verses 2 and 3. And as you're turning there, I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free each and every week. We try to keep a stack of those Bibles right over there, and we'd love for you to take one home as a, as a gift to you. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 2. Let me give you some really quick uh, backstory for those who aren't familiar with this um, ancient document. This is grounded in history. 
What we're about to read is grounded in history. And the backstory is this. In the year 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered the city of Jerusalem. And when he did that, he took many of the Jews into captivity. In 539 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia overthrew the Babylonian king and took control of a vast empire, including the territories of the former kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And King Cyrus, when he took control, he issued a decree that all of the Jewish exiles were now free to return to their land. Well, about 100 years after that decree, a Jew named Nehemiah, who's going to be talking first person here in just a second, was serving in the Persian capital as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And one of Nehemiah's brothers, along with some others from Judah, they came to Nehemiah having just witnessed what was going on in Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up with the story, starting with verse 2. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are destroyed by fire. Now, we're going to be looking at this case study, and there's a section in your notes where you can write these things down, because we can see in Nehemiah, among other things, that there is a progression that we've been talking about. A progression from being isolated, to introduced, to engaged, to advocating. And so I'd encourage you to write this down. Here we're going to look first at this transition from insulated to introduced. Nehemiah was serving in the court of Artaxerxes, which was hundreds of miles removed from Jerusalem. So he didn't know what was going on at that time in Jerusalem. And he became introduced when his brother and these other men came and they said, it's a mess. The walls are broken down. The people are vulnerable. And they're experiencing great shame. Now, here's the thing. I don't want any of us to miss what comes next. Because this is key. This may be the key to everything that we've been talking about. Look at what comes next. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I cannot overstate the importance of prayer in all of this. And this was such a good reminder. I probably would not have been highlighting this today, which I should have been, had it not been for this right here in Nehemiah. This is the key to everything that comes after. There are far more needs within one mile of where we're sitting today than any of us could meet in a lifetime. In fact, I would argue that there's more needs in this building right now than any of us could meet in a lifetime. Now, when you come back from that and you start thinking about all of the world's needs that we become aware of each and every day, that can be paralyzing. Where do you even start? You start with prayer. The account that we're reading right now, that we've been reading from Nehemiah, this took place more than 2,400 years ago. But this emphasis on prayer is as important now as it's ever been. And all of a sudden, the dots started connecting in my head because when I was reading, same kind of different as me, 
I started noticing that prayer kept coming up again and again. So much that I'm like, I'm just going to start noting in the margins here when prayer comes up. So I started noticing around page 100. And then beginning on page 102, I wrote it down and began tracking it. And there it was again on 109. And then again on 117 and 118 and 120 and 121 and 126, 129, 130, 133, 134. I stopped taping down. Prayer kept coming up again and again and again in this account, in this book, in this movie that had uh, good results come forth from a really hard situation. Prayer is so vital that what we're going to do is we're going to take that time from the end of Advent to the beginning of Lent. I think it's something like seven weeks, and we're going to devote that to prayer. And so if you've got some great resources you'd like to send our way, if you've got some great questions you'd like us to take on, please send them our way as we prepare for that series. Well, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible has to do with prayer, and it's found in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9 says this, We prayed and... We prayed and we posted a guard. That's the kind of partners you want to have. You want to have people that are sincerely praying and they're responding out of that prayer. That it's both of those things. That they're two sides of the same coin. Heartfelt prayer and wise actions. There's a place to write this in your notes. Here's one of the things that that can come out of that time of prayer. Everyone should be doing something about something, but no one should feel guilty about not doing something about everything. And I hope I got my words right on that one. Everyone should be doing something about something, but no one should feel guilty about not doing something about everything. And I know we got a lot of people here who've got really big hearts. So we're going to have a little group therapy here. Please repeat after me. Repeat after me. There are times when it's okay to simply and sincerely say, my thoughts and prayers are with you. You needed to speak that out because I know so many people here. You feel so much guilt when you see all these, these tragic situations all around us. And we cannot, we cannot respond fully to everyone. That's one of the reasons why prayer is so important. To go and say, God, is there something you'd have me to do beyond simply and sincerely saying and praying for their needs? Now, if you're not doing anything about anything, then you need to keep praying. Because everyone should be doing something about something. Every one of us. And one of the things that's about prayer, and one of the reasons it's so essential, is because it's helpful to not only determine the when and the what, but also the how but also the how. And if we had more time, boy, I would love, I would love to walk us through Nehemiah's prayer in verses 4 through 11. Maybe this is something you could do in your small churches. It is such a great template to follow as you engage in prayer because Nehemiah pours out his heart, which is so important to be honest before God. And he recalls God's great promises and his faithfulness. And he confesses his sins and the sins of his people. And he asks for God's help as he then makes a commitment to do what he knows he should do do. And all of that comes before this next step. And there's a place to write this in your notes under Nehemiah's case study. He then moved from introduced to engaged. This was a cause that wrecked him. This was a cause he believed that he should do something about. And so he got engaged. After days of, pray, days of praying and fasting and asking for God's help, God opened a door. 
the king could see that something was wrong and asked Nehemiah, what is troubling you? Nehemiah was prepared for that moment. That's so important. He was prepared for that moment when God opened the door. He fired up a quick prayer, which is fun to see in the Bible. And he spoke with graciousness and conviction and tact. And if we had more time, here's another thing I'd like to do. I'd like to go into the Bible, because I've never done this study before. But I'd like to do a study of, of the times when people responded like Nehemiah. When they had a hard word for someone in power, and they did what he did. They began with prayer and fasting. They developed a well-conceived course of action that was wise and just. And they presented their case with graciousness and conviction and tact. Because the times I think of when that happened, they ended well. They ended well. And in our culture today, where almost no discussion is ending well, we have so many people who are quick to justify their outrage and their outrageous actions. May I present to you, if you really want to see lasting change, you might want to reconsider your tactics. Just a thought. Back to Nehemiah. Every vision requires a visionary. And Nehemiah had a vision that came out of a time of deep prayer and extended fasting. And he shared that vision with others. This is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now the scope of this project was enormous. And the number of people who were personally engaged was breathtaking. Nehemiah mobilized donors. He engaged stakeholders in the construction. And page after page in Nehemiah Nehemiah details list after list of who did what. This was truly a team effort. And their efforts drew the attention of critics and cynics and accusers. And I'm so glad that Pastor Jason took us there last week because this is a reality This is a reality. If you set out to do a good work, you can be guaranteed that the cynics and the critics and the accusers will come out of the woodwork. I'd encourage you to write this down. The world is filled with critics and cynics and accusers. And yet another interesting study that we could do is to start at the end of the Bible and look at the word accuser and how it's used. And it's associated to the devil. And it'd be interesting to start there and work backwards and to see all the uses of the word accuser and to see the links that are there. If you are engaged in a God-honoring cause, if you become an advocate for something that God has called you to do, I guarantee that you'll hear accusations from within and from others coming your way. And this was the case in Nehemiah's day. We see it there. I didn't build this thing backwards. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Look at that. It's there too. Nehemiah 4.3. People were looking at the wall that they're building. They said things like this. If a fox climbs up on that wall, that thing's going to crumble. And it was just more loaded than that. 
They didn't just make these accusations. They wanted to take the team out. They wanted to kill Nehemiah. Accusers are just as common today as they were then. Here's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt that I added. There's this um, list of things that I try to read each week before I start my week, just knowing what's coming my way. And here's something that I added there. Maybe some of you might want to do the same. This is from Theodore Roosevelt. I have to remind myself of this all the time. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong person stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or the woman who is actually in the arena, who strives valiantly, who comes up short again and again, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who spends themselves in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if they fail, at least fails while daring greatly, so that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Isn't that good? And can we do this? Can, can we be, make a commitment to being a church that cheers one another on? Can we do that? It is so easy to throw stones at people and how they're, they're living their lives. Can we be a church that's committed to cheering one another on? And can we also do this? Can we be a church that withholds, can we be a people who withholds judgment when we're not in the arena? when we're not the coach, when we're not the teacher, or we're not the person that's doing that ministry. I want to encourage everyone to write this down. Authentic relationships, authentic relationships and true discipleship are messy and inefficient. Can I get an amen? That is the nature of real relationships, isn't it? Anytime you're in a real relationship, it is going to be messy and it's going to be inefficient. And I want to thank Deanna um, for getting up here last week and being so honest. A lot of times you bring up these glory stories where everything looks like it goes great. You see a need, you try to meet it, and woohoo, it's just all happy endings. It, it is hard work, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't catch us by surprise. Every relationship is. Friendship, done well, is messy, and it's inefficient, and it's wonderful. And family, done well is messy, and it's inefficient. And it's wonderful, at least at times, right? <laughs> Marriage, done well, is messy and inefficient and wonderful. And if you're going to engage in ministry that truly changes lives, the lives of the people you're working with and, and your own life as well, if it's done well, it will be messy and inefficient. And you're also going to find it's wonderful. Well, Nehemiah experienced those things and became an advocate. And if you haven't filled in all the blanks yet, here's the final fill-ins to the Nehemiah case study. Nehemiah went from engaged to advocating. And that gap went really quick. I want to encourage you to write fast because I want to show you the defining characteristic of a true advocate. If you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to, to turn to this one. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3. And I'm encouraging you to turn to that one because this is one you might want to underline or mark somehow. This is the mark of a true advocate. When he was up on the wall and his accusers and his critics were saying, you come down, he says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Isn't that the mark of a true advocate? Now, in Nehemiah's case, he also knew those guys wanted to kill him. So he also had that going. You know, there is that. 
But may I present to you, this is the defining mark of a true advocate. When it gets hard, when it gets messy, you, you can't come down. There's something in you that says this work is too important. There's too much at stake. I cannot come down. And you notice, too, how, what he says. He says, I'm doing a great work. He doesn't say I'm doing this community project. This is not a task. This is a great work with deeper meaning. And it is our sincere hope as a church. It is one of our driving passions to encourage and equip and do everything we can to invite you into these kind of relationships where you are able to say, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Again, if you do this, it's going to put you right in the crosshairs of the accuser. And that's not just something we see in Nehemiah. That's something we see in that book that we just read, the movie we just saw. Um, this, this same kind of different as me. As Miss Debbie, in, this, in the, the true story, began to have an impact on the lives of people at the mission, Denver, one of the people from the mission, said this to her husband. He said, Mr. Ron, I got something important to tell you. The work Miss Debbie is doing at the mission is very important. She is becoming precious to God. When you is precious to God, you become important to Satan. Watch your back, Mr. Ron. Something bad getting ready to happen to Miss Debbie. The thief comes in the night. There are a whole lot of people in this room that can testify to this. When you sincerely set out to do what's right, it is amazing how many things go wrong. Pastor Dan and I, we were talking about our middle school snow camp that's coming up. And our theme this year is Area 5-1. It comes out of Ephesians 5-1, which is about following Jesus, about in, imitating God. And one of the things we're going to talk about, is like Area 51, where there's some weird stuff that claims to go on there, we're, we're going to be talking about how there's some amazing things that happen when you set out to really follow God. And we're going to share some of the Holy Spirit stories, some cool things that God does when you set out to sincerely follow Him. We're also going to talk about some of the other weird stuff that happens. All the haters start to come out of the woodwork. You know, here's just a really, an example that's just right in front of us right now. Halloween is coming up, you may have noticed. Because you walk into all these public places, and there's witches and monsters and bloody weapons and like bodies that are all chopped up, and nobody says anything. Right? I mean, the kids' aisles. You got the costume of... The little happy pink princess, and then you got decapitated monster head, you know, it, it, right next to each other. Nobody says anything. What would happen in those same public places at Christmas if you set up a nativity scene? What are you doing? It's the end of the world. You guys and all these haters just come out of everywhere. And, and you're like, what just happened? This just happened. This just happened. When the accusers show up, and they will, remember that you don't just have an accuser. You've got an advocate. You've got an advocate. And I would encourage you to write this in your notes. We have an advocate, and he invites us to follow him. And I want to encourage you to fact check me on this, because it's right there. I've got the text that you can look at. Throughout this series, we have rightly emphasized that God loves and advocates for the poor and the marginalized. You know who else he loves and advocates for? 
you, you and I. The same author who called out the accuser in the book of Revelation reminds us that we all have an advocate when we fall short in 1 John chapters 1 and 2. And the heart of that advocate is revealed in this encounter that was captured in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. A wealthy and influential young man once came up to Jesus and he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here is a direct quote from Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus looking at this wealthy and influential young man. He said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Oh, I've missed the important part here. Going back. And Jesus looking at him, what does it say? Loved him. Loved him. And then he went on to say, you lack one thing, go. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then he says, come follow me. Follow me. Anytime God invites us to do something, it comes from that place of love. It comes from that place of advocacy. And we know that because he paid the price that none of us could pay with his own life. And it's that kind of messy and inefficient love that we call the gospel. It's that kind of love that changes hearts. It changes hearts. And it's the kind of messy and inefficient love that changed Denver's heart, isn't it? In the story that we, many of us read or the movie that many of us saw, Here's what he says in his own words from same kind of different as me. He said, the word says God don't give us credit for loving the folks that we want to love anyway. No, he gives us credit for loving the unlovable. The perfect love of God don't come with no conditions. That's the kind of love that Miss Debbie showed the folks at the mission. Friends, giving is important. But it's the gospel that changes lives. It's the gospel that changes lives. Well, I opened with a story from a covenant training event today. And I want to begin to bring the series to a close um, by sharing something else that we experienced on that trip. Laura and I were going to an off-site event that was related to this conference. And I took a wrong turn off the highway in, in Detroit. And we ended up in a really tough neighborhood. And I, and I thought I'd seen some tough things in Minneapolis because we went to some of the toughest parts of Minneapolis. That's where our kids lived. And on many of the streets in Minneapolis, I remember you'd see a couple, at least a couple houses that were boarded up. In these sections of Detroit, I'm not exaggerating to say there were a couple of houses that weren't boarded up on some of these streets. It was a tough area. And the thing that struck me the most was not that. The thing that struck me the most is we turned this corner and we found ourselves on this street that at one time was probably like Summit Avenue. The, the street was wide. It had these gorgeous trees. And the thing that I noticed the most was there were these churches, one after another after another, on both sides of the road. And these weren't just small buildings. It was as if every denomination that I could think of built their flagship there. These were massive buildings made out of the finest materials, stone, stained glass. They were incredible facilities. One after another, the, 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 the low end of these buildings, maybe $10 million. But here's the thing. None of them looked vibrant anymore. They were as run down as the neighborhood. Some of them were even closed up. 
very few of them were still the same denomination or even function that they had once been. And I remember looking at this place that once was, was as affluent as Southern Avenue. And I looked at these churches that cost $10 million a piece to build. And I'm thinking, you have all of these Christians, all these believers coming to this one area with all these resources. And now the whole area is just a mess. What happened? What happened? And as I was reflecting on that, and trying not to pass judgment and not to think that there was a simplistic answer to, to a very complex situation. As I was wrestling with these things, I thought, you know what? Nehemiah was probably asking something real similar when he got to Jerusalem. And he saw the city, the holy city, with these walls that were ruined. And then here's the next thought that came into my head. What happened to those walls that that team rebuilt? They got ruined again, didn't they? As much as it depends on us, let's get this in our DNA. And I mean that, in our DNA. Let's get this idea that we do not exist for ourselves in our DNA in such a way is that it can't be changed any more than we can change our genetic makeup. Let's embrace Embed this in us as deeply as we can. Let's commit right here, right now to becoming a church family where everyone, everyone is prayerfully, sincerely seeking their next step. Their next step. At one time, I'm sure every one of those impressive buildings on Church Row in Detroit had impressive sermons and impressive music and impressive programs, but they failed to bring the kingdom of God in a lasting, substantive way into their neighborhoods. When we, fueled by the gospel rather than guilt, reach out in Jesus' name to those who are lost and hurting, we're following in the footsteps of people who changed the world. And there's a chance, by doing so, that we can experience the kinds of things that they experienced. Because this isn't something just for Bible people, the original Bible people. Isn't this what we saw happen in that same kind of different as me, true story? This is how the book ends. Mr. Ron still got a lot to learn. I got a lot to learn too. I used to spend a lot of time worrying that I was different from other people, even from other homeless folks. Then, after I met Miss Debbie and Mr. Ron, I worried I was so different from them that we wasn't ever going to get no kind of future. But I found out everybody's different. The same kind of different as me. We're all just regular folks. Listen to these words. These are so well spoken. We're all just regular folks walking down the road God set in front of us. The truth about it is, whether we is rich or poor or something in between, this earth ain't no final resting place. So in a way, we're all homeless, just working our way towards home. Can Denver get an amen? Amen. And the reason I believe that these testimonies aren't just for the original Bible people, and they aren't just for people who are writing New York Times bestsellers, is because we're seeing that happen in our midst as well. You heard Mary share a story today. Most of you heard Deanna share a story last week. 
And I want to close with this one. This comes from one of our teenagers. I asked permission to share this. This is from Kenna Backman, one of our teens. And she had an opportunity to go to Africa and meet the kids that they sponsor through World Vision. And after the experiences they had and as they were pulling out, she wrote these words reflecting on that experience. She said, my brother and I sat in the back looking out the large car window. They tried to make us laugh with their silly faces, and we made faces back at them. They laughed, and we laughed. And in that moment, we weren't the rich kids from the rich land, and they weren't the destitute kids who worked in the hot sun for food and shelter. We were all just children. She didn't write that after reading the same kind of difference as me. That's what happens when we move from introduced to engaged to advocate. This happens anywhere. God's people step into the messy, messy and inefficient work of reaching out in Jesus' name. Well, as the worship band comes up to close out this series with this great anthem, I want to point you to one last passage in Nehemiah and give you the challenge right here. Nehemiah 9.38 says this, says, Because of all this, all this, we made a firm covenant in what? In writing. I want to encourage Everybody in this room, regardless of your age, regardless of of your situation, whatever, everyone to prayerfully write down what's your next step, your next step. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've revealed so much to us, including the great revelation that you are our advocate and that you love us. Lord, out of that great love, help us to trust you that these hard things that you ask are good. In Jesus' name, amen.